Let's have I heard. Two and a half thousand go, years ago in northern India, there lived a young man of the Gotama clan. We don't actually know his first name. He, in later literature, is called Siddhartha Gotama. Siddhartha means the accomplished one, so rather unlikely he was saying that when he was born. But we'll call him Siddhartha Gotama since that's what everybody knows him as. When he was 29 years old, Siddhartha Gotama left his home and family and set out to seek his spiritual fortune. India at that time had created good enough agriculture that not everybody had to be farming in order to feed everybody. There was a surplus. And this surplus supported, well, quite a few things. One of the things it supported was full-time spiritual seekers. And the woods of India were, well, sometimes literally crawling with spiritual seekers. It also supported a merchant class and standing armies. You win some, you lose some. So Siddhartha Gautama headed south and east from his home to the land of the Kalamas. And there he studied with Alara Kalama. He apparently was a well-known <coughs> spiritual teacher. And Siddhartha Gotama learned his doctrine and also learned his meditation practice, which culminated in what we call the seventh jhana, the realm of limitless space. Alara Kalama was so impressed with Siddhartha Gotama, he offered him a joint leadership of the group. But Siddhartha Gotama had left home looking for some way to deal with old age, sickness, and death. And all he got was seven jhanas. So he left. <laughs> he continued on south and east, there in the Ganges River Valley, till he came to the kingdom of Magadha. And there he studied with Udaka Ramaputta, Udaka, the son of Rama. And he learned Rama's doctrine and Rama's meditation practice, which culminated in the eighth jhana, the realm of neither perception or non-perception. And Udaka Ramaputta was so impressed, he said, you know Rama's doctrine and practices as well as he did. Come, you should leave this group. But Siddhartha Gautama was looking for a way to deal with old age, sickness, and death, and all he got now was eight jhanas, so he left again. He began practicing austerities. He practiced the breathless meditation amongst the various austerities, which basically seems like it consisted of holding his breath as long and as much as he could. And what he discovered was that if you hold your breath a lot, it gives you terrible headaches, but nothing useful. So he then began practicing instead eating one grain of rice a day. He took less and less food until he's subsisting on one grain of rice a day. And what he discovered was that if you eat one grain of rice a day, you get enormously skinny, and you have a tendency to fall over. But again, nothing useful. Six years after he left home, he's thinking, you know, this is really not working. 
there, there must be some other way. And trying to figure out what some other possible path of practice would be, he remembered an incident from his childhood. His father was working, and Siddhartha Gautama was sitting under a rose apple tree and stumbled into the first jhana. And now, a quarter century later, he's remembering this incident and thinking, could this be the way to awakening? Those jhanas, that, that, that did pleasure there was not sensual pleasure. It wasn't connected with sensual desire. It was a, a wholesome form of pleasure. I'm not afraid of that kind of pleasure. Perhaps these jhanas could be the way to awakening. The more he thought about it, he finally decided this is the way to awakening. But he realized in his emaciated condition, <laughs> he was not in any condition to do jhana practice. So he began eating solid food. Now at that time, there were five other ascetics practicing with him. And when they saw he'd started eating solid food, they thought he had resorted to the life of luxury and given up the spiritual path. So they left in disgust. But he hadn't given up the spiritual path. He just was trying to find something that worked. He eventually found a place to practice meditation under tree, uh, <coughs> a fig tree near the Nairanjara River, not far from a town where he could go on alms rounds. And on the full moon night in May, which coincidentally was his birthday, he sat down under that tree with the determination that he was going to figure it out or that his, his flesh would rot from his bones. He started out by stepping through the jhanas, one, two, three, four, and then with his mind concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he directed it and inclined it to remembering past lives. He spent the first watch of the night remembering one life, two lives, three lives, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons <coughs> of world expansion, many eons of world contraction. In the second watch of the night, with his mind still concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he was able to see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. And then in the third watch of the night, the final watch of the night, he was able to formulate what we now call the Four Noble Truths, or perhaps more accurately, the Four Ennobling Truths. Four things, when you really understand them, will ennoble you. And when the sun came up the next morning, he was a different person. He was awake. He was the Buddha. He spent the next week enjoying the bliss of awakening, and then spent some time trying to figure out if he could teach this to anybody else. He says, this Dhamma I have attained is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, 
unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. <coughs> but this generation delights in attachment, takes delight in attachment, rejoices in attachment. It's hard for such a generation to see this important thing. Dapataya cha patichasamapak, which we could translate as this, that conditionality dependent origination. And it's hard to see these important things, namely the stilling of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all the accoutrements of one's lifestyle, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, Nibbana. What he found was not obvious. And yeah, people got other agendas. They're addicted to their lifestyles. And he thought, if I try and teach this and nobody gets it, that's going to lead to vexation. And so he was not inclined to. It is said that one of the highest of the Brahma gods, Yahapati, realized that the Buddha was disinclined to teach, and then as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, disappeared from the highest of the heavens, and reappeared on earth in front of the newly awakened Buddha, got down on one knee, put his hands together in reverential salutation, and begged the Buddha to teach for the benefit of gods and humans. He said, there are some who have little dust in their eyes. They will understand what you have come to understand. <coughs> the Buddha thought about it, and then surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha, and he could see many people with much dust in their eyes, and some with nibbling amounts of dust in their eyes, and a few with little dust in their eyes. And he thought, perhaps I could try and teach this to those with little dust in their eyes. And then, Jahampati, having realized that he had enabled the Buddha to teach, as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm and draw it back, disappeared from the human realm and reappeared in the highest of the heavens. The Buddha thought, now who should I teach? Who do I know who has little dust in their eyes? He thought about his first teacher, Alara Kalama. He had little dust in his eyes, but he had recently died. <laughs> and then he thought about his second teacher, Udaka Ramaputta. He also had little dust in his eyes, but he too had recently died. And the Buddha thought about his five friends with whom he had been practicing austerities. Perhaps they have little dust in their eyes. So, seven weeks after his awakening, he set out to find his friends. He could tell, with the eye of a Buddha, that they were living in the deer park outside the great city of Varanasi near the village of Sarna. And so he set out, wandering in that direction. Along the way, he encountered an Ajivaka. The Ajivakas were members of a different religion. And there were a number of different religious sects at that time in India. And this Ajivaka was struck by the Buddha's countenance. And he said to him, You do not seem like other people. Your 
countenance is very serene and clear. Who is your teacher? The Buddha says, I have no teacher. I'm awake. And the Jivaka said, well, good for you, and you passed by on the other side. <laughs> the Buddha's first attempt at teaching did not go over real well. But he continued, and eventually he came to the deer park at Isipatana outside the village of Sarnath. And his friends saw him coming in the distance. Oh, look, it's Sid the Slacker. Well, we'll let him sit with us, but we won't show him any rubber. But when he drew near, they were unable to keep that pack. One of them got up and took his robe and bowl, and another prepared water so he could wash his feet, and another prepared a seat for him. And after he had sat down and washed his feet, he said, Well, guys, I figured it out. And they laughed. He said, You didn't figure nothing out. We saw you. You were eating. You had given up the spiritual life. He said, no, no, I didn't give up the spiritual life. I was just looking for something that, that worked. He said, no, we saw all, you, you resorted to the life of luxury. He said, no, no, listen, have I ever before claimed to have figured it out? Well, they had to admit, never had. So they decided to listen to what he had to say. And he taught them the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana Sutta, the discourse setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma. That's a discourse about the four ennobling truths and the Eightfold Path. The first of these ennobling truths is Dukkha Happens. They used to put that on bumper stickers. <laughs> well, they used the Anglo-Saxon four-letter word rather than the Pali word, but the same idea. The word Dukkha, as I mentioned last night, is often translated as suffering. It's true, all suffering is dukkha, but dukkha has a broader meaning. Unsatisfactoriness would be a better translation. I've seen it translated as unpleasantness. Uh, my favorite translation is bummer. <laughs> I mean, a bummer is something that bums you out. I went to the beach and lost my sunglasses. Look at all bummed out, man. Right? It's your reaction to losing the sunglasses. It's not the loss of the sunglasses, but it's your reaction to it. If I lose my sunglasses and I go, well, I hope whoever finds them has more use for them than I did, it's not a bummer. Right? So this is a very important thing to learn about Dukkha. It's your reaction to the vicissitudes of life that makes it Dukkha. Things are going to go wrong. I mean, is what happens. Modern physics talks about this. Well, they don't use dukkha, they call it entropy. Entropy is the tendency of things to go from a state of order to disorder. When they change, there's lots more ways for them to change to be less orderly than as orderly or more orderly. Um, Suppose I had a copy of War and Peace in a loose-leaf notebook, right? And I open the notebook and I take out the thousand pages. And I throw them up in the air and they all come fluttering down. And then I shuffle them back together so it looks nice. What are the odds that every page is in order, right side up, and not back to front? I mean, I have a degree in math and uh, I still haven't figured out the odds, right? Huge. There's one way for them to be right. 
So when they change, there's lots more ways for it to be disorderly. And this happens, well, to everything, right? You buy a new car, shiny, new car smell. Two years later, dings, no more new car smell. Ten years later, yeah, it doesn't run right, got to get a new car. You clean your house, right? It looks really nice. Two weeks later, somebody came in and messed it up. It wasn't you, right? You don't mess things up, but somebody messed it up. You might have even noticed this happening in the mirror. <laughs> this is what happens. Things change. When they change to be less orderly, if you get upset about it, you experience dukkha. Right? And what the Buddha is basically pointing out is methods so that you don't have the dukkha reaction, the bummer reaction, when things don't go perfectly. And to that end, the second ennobling truth is that dukkha arises dependent on craving. Craving is a translation of the Pali word tanha, which literally means thirst. It's got more the sense of unquenchable thirst gotta have it type thirst. There are actually two words in Pali that mean thirst, but this is the unquenchable, I gotta have it thirst. The Buddha said there are three types of craving. There's craving for sense pleasures. We like to see nice things, hear nice sounds, taste nice taste, smell nice smells, touch nice textures, and have nice mental states in our mind. Okay, and we Crave that. We want it. If we don't get it, we get upset. Dukkha. There's also the, well, bhavatanha and vibhavatanha. Bhava is becoming. So the craving for becoming. The becoming could be either in this life or in a future life. There could be the craving to become rich and famous, or to become a jhana practitioner, or, you know, all sorts of things you could crave to become. It, the primary spiritual tradition at the time of the Buddha was Brahmanism. And in Brahmanism, they were craving to come back in a better situation. You know, be reborn in a family that had a Mercedes Benz, or whatever they had instead of Mercedes Benz at the time of the Buddha. Right? So there's this craving for future becoming, and in particular, better future becoming. And the Buddha says that craving, yeah, that's the setup for dukkha. There's also the opposite, vibhava tantra, craving for not becoming, and craving not to become sick. The Jains, which was another prominent religion at the, Buddha, at the time of the Buddha, uh, they were craving not to come back. And their whole idea was to clean up your karma to such an extent that you wouldn't be reborn. So they had a craving for not becoming in a future life. And the Buddha says all this becoming, not becoming, this life, next life, all of it, it's craving and it's a setup for dukkha. Now sometimes you hear people say that craving causes dukkha, but the Buddha never said that. Basically what he said is that craving arises to 
that dukkha arises dependent on craving. Okay, that's the difference. The idea of necessary condition didn't seem to be really popular at the time of the Buddha. People had all sorts of ideas why things happen. But the Buddha was quite smart. Instead of trying to figure out the causes of dukkha, he's like, what's the necessary condition for dukkha? Now, do you, everybody know necessary condition? Necessary condition for the light to be on is the light switch to be turned on, right? not a sufficient condition. You still need the wires to be intact. You need the generating plant to be pumping out electrons, right? Okay. But if you want the light to be turned off, you don't have to <coughs> blow up the generating plant. You don't have to cut the wires, right? There's an easily manipulable, necessary condition. You turn off the light switch. Okay, so the Buddha is looking for something like that for dukkha. And he finds that dukkha arises dependent on craving. Craving is a necessary condition. That's the second of these ennobling truths. The third of the ennobling truths is that if you don't want any dukkha, don't do the cravings. In other words, if you don't want the lights to come on, don't turn on the light switch. All right? Now, I get up here and I tell you, don't crave. <laughs> yeah, you're still going to crave. I mean, if Buddha himself were sitting here telling you not to crave, you'd still go crave. You've got to learn to not crave. And that's the fourth of the ennobling truths. The second is craving is a necessary condition. The third is don't crave. And the fourth is, all right, here's a path of practice that leads to the end of dukkha. path of practice that enables you to learn to stop craving. This is the ennobling eightfold path, eight practices to undertake. Now, it's not that you perfect the first one and then move on to the second. It's eight practices to practice simultaneously. It's an eight-lane highway, and you get to drive in all lanes at the same time. The first of these is samaditi. Sama, often translated right, but perhaps more appropriately appropriate, and then ditti is view, so appropriate view. Uh, we get the word summit in English from the same root as sama. Right? So the highest form of view, the best view, the view that's going to be most useful for learning to stop craving. Right? And so what is right view? Well, interesting that this would be the first thing on the Eightfold Path. Buddhist teaching was preserved as an oral tradition for, let's say, approximately 350 years after his death. The suttas, his discourses, seem to have a number of layers. And the earliest material that we can find is in the fifth collection, the miscellaneous collection, in the book, uh, the collection within that collection called the Sutta Nipata, the Little Sutta Collection, which contains something like 76 suttas and in five books. And in book four, most scholars agree this is for the most part <coughs> the very earliest material. It seems earliest from the way the language is used, but also early 
from the depiction of the Buddha as a solitary wanderer. You see, after his awakening, he had a few followers, but he eventually sent them all out, no two to go in the same direction, to teach the Dhamma. And he went off by himself, and it was three years before he wound up with a whole bunch of people following him in monasteries and everything else. So this book four depicts a solitary wanderer. And one of the overriding themes of book four of the Sutta Nipata is not holding to fixed views, keeping an open mind, which, when you think about it, is absolutely essential on the spiritual path. Uh, if you don't know what's necessary now to get out of dukkha, you're going to have to change your mind. Right? You're going to have to learn new stuff. If you've got views and opinions, thinking that you've got it all figured out and are not willing to change your mind, you know, you're going to be stuck with stuff that doesn't work. So it's very important to keep an open mind. Also alleviates dukkha. Uh, you don't get caught up in quarrels and disputes about what's going on, right? You just keep an open mind and keep studying to see what's happening. So one aspect of right view is not holding to fixed views. In other words, keeping an open mind. In other suttas, we find right view defined as the Four Noble Truths. This is quite interesting. We're talking about the Four Noble Truths. We get to the fourth one. So that's the Eightfold Path, and the first of the eight is right view, and we dig into right view and we find the Four Noble Truths again. The Buddha's teaching is holographic. It's presented in a very linear fashion because it was presented one word after another. Uh, he didn't have PowerPoint or charts or any of that sort of stuff, right? So we don't want to mistake the way the teachings are presented for the actual depth and breadth of the teachings. So one way to understand right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. Now, the Four Noble Truths are not a cosmological explanation of how the world came to be or anything like that. They're like, hey, there's some important information you need to know right? and work with it. Okay, it's, it's not the usual way a religion starts out with in the beginning and all this other stuff. A third way that right view is described is dependent origination, Patita Samapada. So do we have a conflict here? Is it dependent origination or the Four Noble Truths? Well, no. The Four Noble Truths are, well, as I came up put it, Dependent origination in Telegram style. I guess today we have to say dependent origination in Twitter style. Right? A brief summary of some of the key points of dependent origination. The 12 lengths of dependent origination, which we will get to later, is a more elaborate teaching on dependent origination. But as we'll see, there's far more to dependent origination than the Four Noble Truths or the 12 lengths. Right? So, Right view is a way of looking at the world, looking at the world with an open mind, and also looking at the world and seeing that things arise dependent on other things. The second on the Eightfold Path is right intention. And what is right intention? Intentions of renunciation, intentions of non 
of, of non-harming, teaches of non-ill will. Renunciation. It's a pretty loaded word. The teacher talks about renunciation and the student reaction is, get your hands off my stuff. But that's the problem. We've got so much stuff. We are inundated with stuff. You got so much stuff you can't get your car in the garage. You got so much stuff that you have to go rent a room down the block to put the extra stuff that you have room for in your house. Right? You have so much stuff that when it's your birthday and somebody gives you a new piece of artwork, you don't know where to hang it because you got stuff on all your walls. Well, they give you some new clothing and you don't know where to hang it because all the hangers are full of other stuff. We are inundated with stuff. We live in a culture that basically is saying, you got a problem? Buy this stuff. It's on sale. This does not work. The accumulation of stuff, if it was going to bring happiness, ought to make this country the happiest place on earth because we are just have stuff running out of our ears. Yet, unfortunately, there's a lot of miserable people out there. What the Buddha is basically saying is you need to come to terms with your stuff. Uh, it's true, as a layperson, you need more than three robes in a bowl, which is all you needed if you were a follower of the Buddha during this time. But you don't need what the culture tells you. In particular, given the lack of unlimited resources on this planet, you certainly don't need to be going out and acquiring new stuff all the time. You need to take care of the stuff you have and when it wears out, you need to recycle it or whatever. Ayakema said that you should go through your closets every six months and if you find something there you haven't worn in six months, give it to charity not going to come back into style. You're not going to lose those pounds. Just <laughs> shed your burden. Right? Give it away. Free yourself. You know, rock and roll has some very good advice. Uh, some of the deepest Buddhist teachings come from rock and roll, like freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Right? So you really want to let go. In fact, Ayakiva pointed out that the whole of the spiritual path is about letting go. There's nothing to get. It's all about letting go of everything. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a big old thick book entitled Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand. And it's true, we do have liberation in the palm of our hand. You can see it. You make a fist. Make a fist. Come on, everybody make a fist. Hold it up in front of your face. All right, you want to see liberation? Look at the palm of your hand. That's how you get there. That's what it's about. All right, this is what the teaching on renunciation is about. If you're renouncing, if you're letting go, uh, that's the opposite of craving. It's the practice that's leading you away from dukkha. And then the other two, non-ill will and harmlessness. Or we could say love and compassion. Think of what the world would be like 
that everybody's intentions, their motivations, were about letting go, being loving, being compassionate. Yeah, I want to live on that planet. I want to live in that culture. That would be absolutely amazing. Well, the only way we're going to get there is if everybody does it. And the only person in the group, everybody, that you have any control over is you. So if you would like your life to go in that direction, you have to go in that direction. So can you live in such a way that the intentions behind everything you do are letting go, being loving, being compassionate? This is what the Buddha recommends if you want to get out of Dukkha. These first two on the Eightfold Path are usually referred to as the wisdom aspect, and the next three are the morality, the sila aspect. The first of these is right speech. We talked about right speech some last night when we were talking about the precepts. Not lying, not using harsh or, uh, or abusive speech, not using divisive speech, not engaging in gossip or idle chatter. The spiritual path is about finding the truth, the deepest truth there is. In order to find the truth, you have to be dedicated to the truth. If you go around telling lies, you're not dedicated to the truth. Quite interesting. If you're really working hard to not lie, it sort of means that you have to behave in ways that you wouldn't want to lie about. No, I didn't do that. Right? It's sort of like if you really, really want to tell the truth, then you have to behave in a way you've got nothing to cover up. This is a powerful practice. Now, the Buddha said if you know something that's not true and not useful, don't say it. If you know something that is true and not useful, don't say it. If you know something that's not true but is useful, don't say it. If you know something that's true and useful, find the right time to say it and say it with a loving heart. Now, if everybody spoke only like that, it'd be a lot quieter. <laughs> right? But, yeah, it's possible to use the truth as a weapon, but no, you really want to pay attention and speak the truth when it's useful and timely and you can say it with a loving heart. You don't want to use harsh or abusive language. There's a lot of abuse in this world, and some of it comes with speech. Yeah, don't do that. Say, it says in the suttas, one should speak in ways that are pleasing to the many folk. Yeah, sounds like good advice. We want to be peacemakers. We don't want to cause division. It says, one does not say to this group of people that something that causes division from that group. One does not say to that group something that causes division from this group. So use your speech to be a peacemaker. And then avoiding sampapalapa, animal talk, uh, usually translated as gossip or idle chatter, useless speech. Now, in some of the suttas, the Buddha gives examples of unedifying conversations. 
which is about kings, ministers, robbers, armies, dangers, wars. Food, clothing, drinks, garlands, perfumes, bedding. Uh, villages, towns, cities, countries, characters, relatives, heroes, men or women, street and well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, speculations about land and sea, talk of being and non-being. Doesn't leave a lot to talk about. <laughs> Kings, robbers, <coughs> ministers, armies, dangers, and wars. Well, that's the six o'clock Duca report, right? You, you, you have a box to get the six o'clock Duca report. I mean, that's what it is. You turn on the news, and they're telling you about the Duca today in Afghanistan, and the Duca in Africa, and the Duca, you know, in your hometown. And, and in D.C., they, they passed a bill to try and stop Duca, but it's probably going to make more dukkha, and they'll be back with the weather in a moment. Right? It's, it's a dukkha report. I'm not saying you don't need to know what's going on, but you should take your news in small doses. right? And uh, remember, the TV, the radio, they're feeding you your news in a way to engage you so that you will buy what they're selling. Right? So. Be wise about how you get your news fix. Right? Uh, food, clothing, drinks, beds, garlands, perfumes. <laughs> how many magazines can you find at a newsstand about stuff like that? Carriages, car and driver magazine, anybody? Uh, villages, towns, cities, countries. Andy Nass Traveler, National Geographic. Well, National Geographic, I like that one. Uh, <coughs> relatives, oh boy, that's a good topic. Uh, heroes, uh, pop stars, celebrities, sports stars. You know, we got people in this culture that are famous for just being famous. How vacuous can you get? Right? Uh, Women or men, yeah, hot topic there. Street and well gossip, water cooler gossip. The Buddha said that the monks and nuns should talk about the Dharma or keep silent. As a lay person, you probably have to engage with people where, yeah, there are going to be other topics of conversation. It's one of the unedifying conversations. You should know. That's what you're engaged in. And if you see an opening to move it to a better topic, by all means, take the opening. The next on the Eightfold Path is right action. Right action is defined as not killing living beings, not taking what is not given, and not committing sexual misconduct. So in two of the Eightfold Path, we have four of the precepts. You might be wondering about the precept on intoxicants. Well, the Buddha's giving this talk to five guys eating one grain of rice a day. You didn't have to worry about them drinking alcohol or smoking dope or anything like that. Right? It wasn't until he got lay people that he actually had to give the precept on intoxicants. 
And the third of the morality on the Eightfold Path is right livelihood. And what is right livelihood? Any livelihood that's not wrong livelihood. Right. What's wrong livelihood? Any livelihood that involves breaking one of the precepts or encouraging someone else to break a precept. Right. So if you work in a liquor store, even if you don't drink, it's still not right livelihood because you're encouraging other people to break the fifth precept. Some livelihoods is pretty obvious not right livelihood. There's a list in the suttas. It includes things like being a slave trader, selling weapons, selling poison, being a butcher, being a thief, being a gambler. Uh, other livelihoods are helping. They're clearly uh, right livelihood. Um, some it's a little hard to figure out. I used to work for a company uh, that sold a database product. Right? like an electronic filing cabinet. That would be all right. Well, who are our customers? California Water Resources Board, University of California, General Electric, Pentagon. Yeah, well, I'm glad I don't work there anymore. Right? So, how are you earning your keep on this planet? Are you making things better or worse? how you earn your money. That's what you want to look at. Is what you're doing improving things or causing a mess? If it's improving things, it's right livelihood. And then the last three on the Eightfold Path are the wisdom, or the uh, concentration part, the Samadhi part. The first of these is right effort. Right effort's talked about in two ways, principally. One <coughs> is effort that's not too much, not too little. Uh, There's the story of Sona, who was so delicately raised, he had hair growing on the soles of his feet. Right? And uh, he becomes a Buddhist monk, and he's doing walking meditation, and his feet are cracking and blistering and bleeding, and he's like, I can't do this. He goes to the Buddha and says, I can't do it, I'm going home. And the Buddha says, Sona, can you play a lute? Yes, Venerable Sir, I can play a lute. No, no, when you tune your lute, do you tighten the strings as tight as they will go? No, Venerable Sir. Do you loosen them so they're very slack? No, Venerable Sir. What do you do? In the middle, between slack and tight, where, where it's just right. Same thing with your effort, Sona. Sona decided to stay why right effort, and as usually happens in these stories, eventually became fully awakened. And I said relaxed diligence yesterday. That's what I was talking about. Find that middle ground for your effort. Right? Not too much, not too little. Okay? So that's one form of right effort. The second form is the four great efforts. That's to Take an arisen, unwholesome state and make it go away. To prevent the arising of an unwholesome state. To encourage the arising of a wholesome state. And to make an arisen, wholesome state stick around and come to perfection. I'll give you an example. 
you're driving down the freeway and some idiot cuts you off. And the next thing you know, you're screaming four-letter words at your windshield. It's an unwholesome state as a <coughs> anger. All right? So you want to make it go away. What's the uh, counterpoint for anger? Oh, metta. So you start doing metta. May you learn to drive. <laughs> May you arrive safely at your destination. All right? So you had an unwholesome state arise, and you made it go away. So you continue down the freeway, and some other idiot cuts you off. And you're just about to start screaming four-letter words at your windshield, but you manage not to fall into anger and start doing metta. May you learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. Right? So you prevented the arising of an unwholesome state. But you also made a wholesome state arise. Okay? So keep it around and bring it to perfection. May we all arrive safely at our destination. May there be no traffic jams for any of you anywhere. Okay? You brought it to perfection. So these are the four great efforts. It's important to know what your mental state is. And if it's an unwholesome one, you need to deal with it. And if it's a wholesome one, you need to keep it around. And if you're about to have a state arise, Prevent it if it's unwholesome and encourage it if it's wholesome. The seventh on the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. And what is right mindfulness? It's the four establishments of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of Vedana. Vedana is the Pali word that refers to your initial categorization of a sensory input. And there are only three possibilities. Pleasant, Unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. We don't have a really good English word for that. Valence uh, is probably the best word, but that's not that well known. So I'll just call it the initial categorization <coughs> of a sensory input, and I'll use the poly word. It's a word you need to know. The third of the establishments of mindfulness is citta, which usually translated as mind, better translated as heart-mind, but in this instance actually refers to mind states. So mindfulness of your state of mind. You're going to have to do that if you're going to get rid of the unwholesome state. You have to be mindful you're in an unwholesome state. If you're going to encourage a wholesome state that's there, you need to know it's there, etc. Right? So knowing your state of mind. And then the fourth establishment is mindfulness of dharmas. Dharma is an interesting word. It has different meanings in different contexts. When you see it capitalized and singular, it either refers to the truth with a capital T, or the teachings of the Buddha, or maybe doctrine in general. When you see it with a little d and plural, dharmas, dhammas, be translated as mind objects, which you often see, but in this case, better translated as phenomena. So mindfulness of phenomena with respect to the Dharma. So mindfulness of dharmas with respect to the Dharma. Basically, what are you experiencing and how, do, how are you relating to it in relationship to the Buddhist teachings? We'll go into this in great detail. And then the eighth on the Eightfold Path, Sama Samadhi. Right concentration or appropriate indistractability. 
And what is appropriate indistractability? Secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. This is right concentration. When the Buddha had finished with his sutta, he looked at the five guys and he saw that one of them, Pandanya by name, got it. He understood. Uh, he knew. And the Buddha got kind of excited about it. He said, Kandanya, you know, don't you? You know, Kandanya. Which in Pali is something like Anya Kandanya. And indeed, Kandanya did know. And what did he know? All that arises also ceases. He had attained the first level of awakening called stream entry. We owe a great debt of gratitude to Kandanya. Can you imagine? The Buddha finishes his Dhamma talk and the five guys go, so? <laughs> right? But Kandanya got it. He had little dust in his eyes. And so the Buddha was encouraged to keep teaching. And one by one, each of the other guys also got it and attained the first level of awakening. And then when he knew their minds were well prepared, he gave them what we call the second discourse. The discourse on not-self. But we'll have to save that for another time. <laughs> Questions? Comments? Short break, and when we come back, we'll do guided messages.